It was a tragic way to end a successful and rewarding career. At the age of 40, my entire world was caving in. I'd lived most of my life with only one ambition, to preach God's word, and worked desperately hard to achieve it. During the last eight years especially, I'd seen the fulfilment of this lifelong dream. Now, my 22 years of struggle, sacrifice and achievements were coming to a horrifying conclusion. Watching everything I'd accomplished crumble away by the hour left me weak and in a state of shock. I wept frequently and wondered how I could have lost all I valued in such a short space of time. That one event, ten days earlier, had caused my life to collapse like an endless line of dominoes. Deep down inside, I'd feared this might happen. But like so many things in my life, I put it out of my mind, unwilling to face reality. Now reality was screaming in my face, refusing to be ignored. I'd invested my life in becoming one of Australia's leading evangelists for the Assemblies of God Church. I was in great demand. My calendar was always booked out 12 months in advance, and every weekend was spent flying all over the country, preaching at youth rallies and Australia's largest congregations. Standing before thousands of young Christian people hanging on every word I spoke was exciting and rewarding. Prominent Bible colleges booked me regularly for a week of lectures for their entire student body. On other occasions, I'd been the guest speaker at national leaders' conferences and even been invited as the Australian representative for international religious events. My message was preaching the relevancy of Jesus Christ to a world in need and sharing the power of God to change lives. People valued my insight because I'd successfully accomplished what so many had previously failed to do. I was a full-time evangelist. This was a common occurrence in the United States, but Australia was a different story. Many prominent preachers in Pentecostal circles had tried to function as full-time evangelists, but quickly retreated to the security of a regular salary, pastoring a church. The financial pressures and demands of an itinerant ministry proved too much for many a starry-eyed preacher. When I'd established my organisation, Every Believer Evangelism, eight years earlier, in 1983, I had one mission to break through the preconceived ideas and concepts of evangelism and establish the role of the itinerant evangelist as a vital and permanent ministry in the church in Australia. I really believed breaking through these barriers would make it easier for others to follow. My family and I had paid a high price to overcome the obstacles, and for some reason I'd succeeded where others had failed. Thousands of people attended my seminars and weekend camps, and the sale of my tapes and videos had added to the impact. What thrilled me most of all was that thousands had become Christians after hearing me preach, now convinced God was real and Jesus Christ could change their lives. I gained great satisfaction from the opportunities to travel overseas and lead church study tours to the United States, knowing I was bringing significant change to individuals and the denomination, but it had all come to an end. That April Sunday morning in 1991 was beautiful. The sun was shining, the sky a cloudless, rich blue, and the slight chill of the early autumn morning had melted. My family loved living on the central coast of New South Wales, 
as it was always a few degrees warmer than Sydney, people were more laid back and life not as rushed. My wife Helen and I moved there in 1988 with our daughters Rebecca and Hannah after being based in Sydney for four years. Living in Sydney had not worked out. I was away preaching for six months of the year and the large, busy city church at Waterloo seemed unaware of the loneliness and isolation Helen felt trying to raise the girls on her own. Moving to the central coast meant our family had a church they could call home and, more importantly, connect with, while providing me with a retreat from my hectic schedule. All over the coast, families were getting ready for the regular morning service of celebration, oblivious to what they were about to encounter. I'm sure everyone was expecting to hear glowing reports about the wonderful things happening in the denomination. The Assemblies of God denomination is part of the Pentecostal stream of Christendom, the others being Catholicism and Protestantism. In each of these streams, there are a variety of groups and denominations, but the Assemblies of God is by far the largest denomination in the Pentecostal stream. The Pentecostal movement was born at the beginning of the 20th century in the United States, which had seen a revival of the supernatural manifestations mentioned in the New Testament, such as healing, miracles, prophecy, and speaking in tongues. There are hundreds of denominations in Pentecostalism, including the Apostolic Churches, Elam, Foursquare Gospel, and the Church of God, just to name a few. There are also thousands of independent churches with no affiliation to a particular group. Surprisingly, the Assemblies of God in Australia began independently of the American movement. In Australia, over the last 40 years, the Assemblies of God has experienced a renewal, rising out of institutional religiosity to become the fastest-growing denomination in the country. The name, Assemblies of God, was not well known to many people in Australia. Most Pentecostal churches chose more contemporary names like Christian Life Centre, Christian Centre and Hillsong. Only that week, Helen and I had joined the local church leaders in Sydney for the Assemblies of God National Conference at the Darling Harbour Convention Centre. Now it was Sunday and time for church, so I dragged myself out of bed and showered and sat on the lounge with my Bible on my lap. No breakfast that morning. I'd been unable to eat for days. I was trying to get some words of encouragement from the scriptures to help me through the next few hours. I wistfully flicked through the light rice paper pages of my well-worn Bible, but they appeared transparent as my eyes focused beyond the page, unable to settle on any particular words or phrases. An air of grief permeated the Venn Brown household, not unlike the heavy uneasy silence that settles on a house full of relatives waiting to go to a funeral. We moved slowly and solemnly around the house, only speaking when it was absolutely necessary. We usually treasured the rare opportunities of attending church together, but not this Sunday morning. Normally we'd be early for church. This morning we'd left it until the last minute to leave, but now it was time to go. It had to be done. The leaders of my denomination told me it must be done, as this would be a part of my healing and restoration, demonstrating I was truly repentant. It was useless arguing with them, as I had no emotional energy in me to oppose their decision. 
The girls looked beautiful, as usual, dressed in their Sunday best. Rebecca, from her moment of birth, was the type of child who attracted people with her bright personality and was often called Little Tony after me. Now, at the age of 15, she had her first perm and her sun-bleached hair frizzed uncontrollably at the sides. Hannah had inherited most of her mother's personality and, even at 13, had already established herself as the more conservative one, which was reflected in her hairstyle, a straight bob. She always had an inner quality that shone in her face, and the strong cheekbone structure she'd inherited from her mother's Ukrainian side of the family meant she'd constantly fought off people trying to pinch her gorgeous cheeks. Spending most of our lives in the ministry meant there was little money for luxuries such as the latest fashionable labels, but Helen had an amazing knack of making the girls look like a million dollars. We prided ourselves on being a very trendy, contemporary Christian family. Helen was putting on a brave face and doing everything she could to pretend this was a normal Sunday morning. Over the last few days, I'd witnessed a strength in her I'd never seen before, but it was difficult to tell what she was really feeling, as she had put her emotions aside in order to sustain the family cohesion. I was really worried about her, though, knowing the stress of our crisis was driving both of us to breaking point. She'd been placed on medication and only a few days before had collapsed on my office floor after making the frightening discovery. There's only so much a person can take. It was also difficult to determine what my girls were really thinking. I was hoping they were too young to fully realise the implications of the day ahead, but I'm sure they were feeling confused and betrayed. Confused because of the secrecy of what was really going on.